This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, the story of the U.S. stock markets coming off a best week ever right in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. We'll hear from Mohammed Alarian. Narratives matter. So the next narrative is a realization that the restart is going to be really tricky and that the post-crisis landscape is going to be different. Author Richard Preston on what previous outbreaks have taught us about finding a cure. These drugs, if they work, they can reverse the disease with remarkable speed. And billionaire investor Mark Cuban on getting back in the game, both basketball and Main Street businesses. We're at the point now where if things start continue to cascade down, then we start looking at really bad news. It's Monday, April 13th, 2020. Squawk Pot begins right now. Good morning, everybody. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. First up on today's podcast, how the U.S. economy is weathering a pandemic. Last week, the S&P 500 had its best week since 1974. And on Thursday, the last trading day of that week, the Dow Jones Industrial Average closed less than 20 percent off of its February highs. Of course, during that same week, we saw the total number of Americans newly seeking unemployment benefits reach higher than 16 million. That means the U.S. has lost about 10 percent of its workforce in just three weeks. This week, as we closely watch the number of new coronavirus cases and related fatalities with that constant question of, is this the worst of it? We'll also be watching the markets grapple with continued business shutdown. Major American companies also begin earnings season when they report their quarterly performance. And we get the next weekly report on initial jobless claims, expected Thursday. Here's Mohamed El Aryan, Allianz Chief Economic Advisor, with Joe Kernan on Squawk Box today. We talk a lot, Mohamed. We talk on there. We talk off there. You've pointed out to me that, that you are a you, you holistically look at everything. You look at global economies. You look at global central banks. And we specifically ask you about stocks. And we put you into calling S&P up this much, down that much. And, and so that's as much as, as our fault as anybody's. Do you think that this is a bear market route. And I'm asking you, I'm putting you back in that position. You may or may not, that may not be your expertise. You're a, a bond guy at PIMCO and you know more about the Fed and, and everything else. But do you get the feeling that the, the stock market is underestimating the long-term effects of this in, in a way that it's, it's dra- drawing people in when they shouldn't be in because we're headed back down? Is that how you feel? Yeah, I do, Joe. And let me explain that why, why these themes matter. Look, we moved and had the fastest correction in history. Last week, we had the biggest weekly uptick since 1974. These markets, when they move, they move really quickly. And what do they move on? A change in the governing narrative. We are very sensitive to narratives. And the narrative last week and it's a really encouraging one, is let's look forward to the restart. And we are all looking forward to the restart. And the second narrative that changed last week is, wow, the Fed is willing to do a lot more than we ever thought. So narratives matter, and they cause massive swings in markets. So the next narrative that's going to develop, I think, and this is my own personal view, is a realization that the restart is going to be really tricky and that the post-crisis landscape is going to be different. And that's the one that you've got to navigate through if you're a long-term investor. Okay. So it still sounds like what I started off the 
discussion with about how people do change. Would you be surprised now if we, if we hit new lows in the next six months or not? Look, in this environment of enormous uncertainty, nothing would surprise me. We need to be great health experts to predict the market. You have to, and you need to, to get a feel for how far can the Fed go from here. Um, these are yeah. really big unknowns, Joe. We have no playbook to guide us. On the health side, right. do you feel confident calling for uh, well, what's going to happen I, next? No, no, I, I don't. But I, I feel confident that there's times when I, I, I think that the market can, the message of the markets can tell me something that I don't un, that I don't understand, and, and I won't understand until it happens. So I, I, I think bond guys, by definition. Did you see uh, one of our friends, uh, I think Barry Knapp said, bond guys, they can never get more than par. So they're always in a bad, they're always pessimistic. So I think it's, you know, right now, I don't know whether the market's trying to suck people back in as people, uh, you know, at, at these levels, more people can sell or whether it moved so quickly last week, because if you didn't have the intestinal fortitude to take a shot last week, you may have missed the first 27% of, of the bounce. So, Joe, so Joe, a lot of times the market- I think the, the yeah. market has surprised us repeatedly. I think most of us would, I would certainly admit the market has surprised me repeatedly. And when that happens, you ask yourself the question, how much uncertainty is out there? We are going to have two or three weeks now of, of earnings calls where I suspect the majority of companies are going to suspend their forward guidance. They're basically going to say, we can't give you any guidance. We don't have clarity. The market is, is the accumulation of all these people who have no clarity. So we got to acknowledge that the amount of uncertainty in the marketplace is high. When the amount of uncertainty is high, the likelihood of a mistake goes up. No one wants to make a mistake. So what we have to ask ourselves is what mistake can you afford to make? And I think that is the key issue for everybody watching that show. And the answer right. will differ. Mohammed, we will see you Wednesday, I think. Uh, and we will, uh, who knows what the narrative will be uh, by that day. But uh, thank, thank you, you. Joe. Next on Squawk Pod, could a cure for coronavirus be found from recovered patients? If all goes well, maybe by August, we might have the ability to manufacture 100,000, 200,000 doses of an antibody drug. Author Richard Preston weighs in when we come back. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. The National Institute of Health is beginning a study to test Americans who have been infected with coronavirus and may now have useful antibodies. The results will help shed light on how the novel coronavirus first spread undetected in the United States and provide insight into which communities and populations have been hardest hit. Here's what Bill Gates, co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, had to say about using the blood of patients that have recovered from the virus to treat those who have contracted it. Manufactured antibodies are using the blood of recovered patients in order to help treat people who are just getting sick. Those, uh, there's enough of them that in aggregate, I'd say it's very likely we'll have uh, those interventions in the four to six month time frame. But how much that'll cut the death rate in these overloads, you know, is still a bit uncertain. 
So for perspective on treatments and what we can learn from previous pandemics, we spoke with New Yorker contributor and best-selling author Richard Preston. He's the writer of 10 best-selling fiction and nonfiction books, including The Hot Zone and Crisis in the Red Zone, the story of the deadliest Ebola outbreak in history, which looks at the 2014-2015 outbreak. Preston is also the only non-physician to ever receive the Centers for Disease Control's Champion of Prevention Award. Here's Joe Kernan with Richard Preston. Richard, let's first talk about monoclonal antibodies. And, and I know you think that may be uh, eventually something that we're able to do. That we, we've done it a lot with different diseases. We know that the, the, there's proof of concept there that it works. It should work with this. What's, what's the, the, the issue with it not being a near-term solution? Do you need to fully humanize the antibodies or, or are they hard to make in large quantities or what should preclude us from doing that? It's had success with other uh, viruses. Well, Bill Gates mentioned uh, manufactured antibodies, and he's definitely on the right track, I think. So what we're talking about now are antibodies that are used as a drug to treat the disease. We're not talking about the antibody test, which is a different matter. So um, manufactured antibodies, monoclonal antibodies, well, we, we have the ability to make lots of them different kinds. Uh, getting up to surge capacity is another issue entirely. But what are antibodies anyway? What, what are we talking about? Well, antibodies are these little tiny proteins that circulate in our blood. Uh, and the human blood is literally thick with antibodies. It's about 2% antibodies. And antibodies are these, these little proteins that are, um, they have a kind of a Y shape but they have different shapes. They're like the teeth uh, of a key that fit into a lock. And if you can find an antibody, a particular shape of antibody that can stick to the coronavirus, it can kill the coronavirus. Now, um, people who are infected with coronavirus, your antibody system is incredibly powerful. And whenever you get infected with anything, your, your body begins manufacturing many different kinds of antibodies to respond to the challenge, to the, to the invader in your body. Um, and so people with coronavirus, they might have 500 or 1,000 different kinds of antibodies that your immune system is just throwing at that virus to see if something sticks, something will kill it. And then your immune system... Um, you know, it can recognize the antibodies that are actually working against the virus and will make them in large quantities. So now how do we get from that to um, a manufacturing plant that's making these in quantity? Well, the way it's done is you get the blood of somebody who's survived coronavirus, and then you, you, you take out of that blood hundreds of different kinds of antibodies that might work on coronavirus. You test it out in test tubes and in mice. You find out the antibodies that really work, uh, and then you can purify them. And with a, a manufacturing plant that maybe costs a billion dollars, you can then begin to grow them in tanks, which are called bioreactors. And what you have left is an antibody drug. And it looks like, it's amazing, it looks like water. It's actually purified water that has maybe two or three different kinds of antibodies dissolved in it. Um, this is called an antibody cocktail. And it is then given to a patient who is sick with coronavirus. If all works, 
if there's, you know, there, there's many a slip between the cup and the lip, but a lot of different companies are working on this now. If it all works, the antibodies can, you know, in principle, knock out the virus really fast. So this happened with Ebola. And uh, one company developed a drug. Uh, it was this little antibody cocktail, just water, you know, looks like water. And it's infused into a patient um, with a bag of saline solution. And the first patient who was given the antibody drug uh, was actively dying of Ebola. Now, this was Dr. Kent Brantley, an American. And uh, he was really in the throes of death when they began to administer the drug. And he turned around in 90 minutes. 90 minutes after he started getting the drug, he sat up in bed. He had not been able to move in three days. Uh, and he got out of bed and he said, I'd like to go to the bathroom. He went to the bathroom under his own power. So uh, these drugs, if they work, they can, reverse, uh, they can reverse the disease with remarkable speed. They basically kill every virus particle in your body. Uh, now, um, uh, you know, but can we really do this at a large scale? That's a whole nother question. Uh, now, there's a company called Regeneron that is working on this, a number of companies. Um, but, you know, at best, um, if all goes well, maybe by August, we might have the ability to manufacture 100,000, 200,000 uh, doses of an antibody drug. Now, that's not enough to treat everybody. So there's going to, if this works, there's going to be a big question. Okay, who gets the drug? And, you know, it'll be healthcare workers, healthcare workers who are infected, patients who are really sick and could die. And the drug, you know, at best could save some lives, but it's not going to be an ultimate solution right away. Now, looking to the future, Let's, let's talk a little bit more about the next pandemic, because this is a process of nature that is going on right now. We're in the middle of a kind of viral storm. These storms come along. They're coming along more frequently because there are a lot more humans on the planet. And we're now crowded into these giant cities. You know, it's a perfect Petri dish for a new virus to get going. But in the future, um, we can hope that governments and companies will invest enough and do enough research so that we can have kind of ready-made platforms for antibody drugs and also for vaccines so that when the next pandemic comes along, um, we can respond more quickly, we can make more of the drug, right. um, we can get it to more people more quickly, and you know we can, we can damp down the effects of the right. pandemic this way. This is the future. Um, you know, I, I write right. a lot about um, really grisly viruses and horrifying human circumstances, but right. the truth of the matter is that I'm hey, kind of an hey, Richard. Yeah. Richard, question to you about antibodies, but really uh, in the context of this concept of herd, herd immunity. And, and we, we seem to be getting conflicting information about what happens once you've had the virus, whether you genuinely are immune to it, whether you're immune to it for a period of time, whether that's days or weeks or much longer. From, from the research that you're doing, what, do, what are you hearing and what are you seeing, given that we seem to get this conflicting, uh, conflicting news on, on that at, at the moment? Yeah, that is such an interesting question. We don't really know if antibodies alone, if you can get 
sufficient immunity to this virus to guarantee that you won't catch it a second time. We just don't know that. Um, and so that's a big question mark about the antibody drugs. Maybe coronavirus is, you know, slicker than some other viruses. Maybe it, it's a little better at evading antibodies in the immune system. So maybe the antibody drugs won't work quite as well. It's, it's just a question that you can only answer with science. You can only answer it with controlled clinical trials. That, that takes time. What is your point about uh, how we didn't really handle Ebola that well the first time around over in, in, uh, in Africa, Richard? And, and there are cases again. And, and what are the possibilities that, that uh, I mean, if, if this was Ebola instead of coronavirus, I'm not sure... I'm not sure where we'd be uh, as a society. Is, is that possible? And what did we do wrong a couple of years ago? Because we, we mostly got rid of it, but now it's, it's reemerging in Africa right now, I think, right? Well, you know, you, you were talking earlier about how we weren't, we weren't really thinking and ready for the pandemic. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, it's understandable. The same was true with Ebola in Africa. You know, and it first broke out in some, you know, rural hospitals in Africa, and it was killing people like flies. It, it turned out to be as contagious as the common flu. Um, so we're talking about a potential nightmare here. And uh, when experts began trying to warn people in Washington that, you know, a crisis in a small forgotten hospital in Africa is actually a crisis for North America. People weren't prepared to listen. Uh, I think that we, and I mean we as the human species, have to kind of get a, a different perspective on nature and on these pandemics. The human species right now is fundamentally fragile. And you can see this in the coronavirus pandemic, which began with one person. One person probably somewhere in Wuhan, China, who got a cold from a bat, got a bat sniffle. And, you know, months later, the global economy is having a heart attack. And uh, it could, in theory, I suppose, have happened with Ebola. It has, it has happened with coronavirus. And there will be others in the future. Uh, so uh, we do ourselves a favor if we think hard and long about uh, how to harden the medical system and how to harden public yep. health to deal with these emergencies. A combination of that and a, a really quick technology platform as we, you know, our, our understanding of immunology gets better and better, it will be possible uh, to, to do this more quickly, I would think. I mean, we, we are able, yeah. you know, every year we try yeah. to deal with seasonal flu and, 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 and we, 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 you know, we didn't know in 1917 or 18, we didn't know the, the human genome. We, Watson and Crick hadn't even discovered the structure of DNA at that point. I don't, we didn't have antibiotics, I don't think. So, so hopefully we'll be able to, because right. that's, that's frightening to think of, of Ebola uh, if this was a, a pandemic of Ebola because the mortality rate's so much higher. It would be literally like science, uh, science fiction. You wouldn't leave your house without a full hazmat suit, I guess. So Suddenly the world has become kind of science fiction-y in a way, but in a bad way. It has, but also, no doubt. You know, it's both Twilight Zone. No, not. Uh, no. It's also a time when technology can really make a difference. No, no, no. Uh, the Jetsons 
would be better for me. You know, flying cars. This, uh, th th this, this is the wrong uh, science fiction future. Anyway, Richard Preston, uh, author of Crisis in the Red Zone. All your books have zone in them. I'm, that, you know, these are bad zones. Uh, hot zone, crisis in the red zone. Uh, we appreciate it. We'll see you again. Thank you. Coming up, Mark Cuban, the Shark Tank investor on getting much-needed assistance to American entrepreneurs. We are at an inflection point where money has to get into the system so small and medium and even large companies retain their employees. Squawk Pod is back after this. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. Economic pain from the coronavirus has led to government promises of billions of dollars for big American industries. But that has renewed a debate over whether or not bailouts are appropriate. On CNBC late last week, Social Capital CEO Chamath Palahapatiya said straight out that he thinks U.S. airlines should not be bailed out. The people that get wiped out are the speculators that own the unsecured tranches of debt or the folks that own the equity. And by the way, those are the rules of the game. That's right, because these are the people that purport to be the most sophisticated investors in the world. They deserve to get wiped out. Joining us now is billionaire investor Mark Cuban. Of course, you know, Mark is the chairman of AXS TV. He's also the owner of the NBA's Dallas Mavericks. And, and Mark, it's good talking to you. Thanks for calling in today. Thanks for having me on, Becky. You know, Mark, I want to start with what Jim was just talking about, this idea of now everybody asking, when do we open up again? What what comes next? And And I think... The NBA was particularly present. I think it was the NBA shutdown that really kind of alerted the rest of the nation and made people sit up and take this seriously. I remember the video again, of <laughs> watching at the game as you got the call that this was going yeah. to close and your kind of stunned reaction. And I, I remember that's the same way I felt at that point. That was March 11th. Looking at this, trying to figure out what comes next? You guys have your own experts that you've been hearing from. We've, we've had people like Bill Gates say they're not sure that you're going to be getting people going back to stadiums, going back to arenas. But what are you hearing right now? What do you think happens next with the NBA? Because I think we're all watching you guys closely. I'm, I'm getting the same information everybody else is, uncertainty. And there's no way that we'll let fans back in, players back in, staff back in until we're certain that they're safe. And, you know, it, this is just a moving target. Every day we get more information. Every day we get better testing information. Every day we get better um, information from trials. And as those progress and we get some clarity, then we'll make a decision. I mean, the biggest mistake we could make would be to rush into something. Let's talk a little bit about how things are rolling out to small businesses now. There have been a lot of complaints that uh, people haven't gotten their money yet, and I, I completely understand that. These are people who have gone without a month at this point, in a lot of cases, within, without any revenue coming in. At the same time, I can understand the bank's perspective of trying to process a loan for every single one of their customers at the same time. So how, how does this work? How should we be thinking about this? And, and what are you hearing? Yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, you know, when I was talking to Treasury, the whole idea was, you know, a little bit of ready-fire aim. This isn't going to be perfect, but we're telling the banks that, you know, they can authorize loans that they otherwise would not authorize, and the Treasury will guarantee them. And the idea was that all this would be handled very quickly, if not smoothly. Unfortunately, that's not what has happened. Banks are playing them themselves. They're, you know, they're being banks, and they're trying to determine if the credits are good, and that's leading to a lot of small businesses that are left out in the cold. I mean, my Shark Tank company is talking to a lot of them. Banks don't understand the affiliate rules because the affiliate rules have not been clarified by the Treasury. And so if a small, a small company has an investor with more than a 20% interest that owns other companies, then those 
those companies are being put to the back of the line, which has really hurt my Shark Tank companies. Um, and in those cases, I've basically told them, we'll reduce my equity to under 20% just to get you through this. I've had other instances where um, they said, well, your, your gross margins aren't good enough. We're uncertain. You know, and I, I've tried to call the banks and say, no, that's not the point behind the PPP loans. You know, this is not about that. This is a, a guaranteed by the government, and this is supposed to turn into a grant if you retain all your employees. And so, you know, you have banks that have, that have implemented all these hurdles, and that's just, not the, that's just not the way it was supposed to be. And so until we get through that friction, there's going to be a lot of issues, and there's going to be a lot of people laid off and a lot of companies that go out of business. Now, hopefully this is kind of a a, a reframing of what happened with healthcare.gov, and you know it turned out to be tough at the beginning, and then it got smoothed out. And hopefully, it'll be the same way here that we'll get another tranche of money, and the second tranche will have clear rules, and banks will recognize that this is not a typical credit environment where you're supposed to analyze each application as if it was a new loan. But this is, you know, a hurry-up environment where we need to get money in small businesses' hands so that they can retain their employees. Hey, Mark, uh, over the weekend, the owner of the Houston Rockets uh, in Texas uh, said that he had done uh, his employees a favor by laying off 45,000 of them um, so that they could uh, get unemployment. My question to you is, what do you think the responsibility of uh, an owner of a a team or an owner of a company, especially one uh, with with means, should be in this time? Well, I mean... It really depends on the individual circumstances. You know, I don't want to speak for Tillman and what's going on with him, but um, not every owner of a professional sports team is in the same financial situation. Some can afford, like I can, to retain all their employees, and, and some cannot. You know, some have had other businesses that, well, I, I, can, I don't want to name the name, but I can tell you uh, somebody I know that I spoke to that had the, what they thought was a $2 billion-plus net worth going into all this, and now is in the low hundreds of millions because they're, all their businesses were in industries that just got shut down. And so not everybody is in the same set of circumstances. You know, I, I think where you do have the resources like I do, you do have an obligation to retain your employees. You know, there's just a bigger picture that we have to try to support. And, and the reason I ask is how we should think about even some of the small business loans because, you know, every small business loan is going to come with a tax ID. And you know... Six months from now, a year from now, people are going to look back at those tax IDs to see who took the loans, who didn't take the loans, who didn't get access to the loans. And right now, this is still a first come, first serve operation. So if you can get to the front of the line, you can get that loan. If you have a good lawyer, a good accountant, uh, you can get to the front of the line, whereas the people who probably need the money the most are at the back of the line because... They don't have necessarily all of those. Yeah, and actually, uh, it's not uh, even so much good lawyer or good accountant. It's more, you know, what's your connection to the bank and how strong a relationship do you have with the bank right. and how concerned are they that if they don't lend you the money quickly? And again, that's the antithesis of a small business. You know, if, if you have, uh, you know, 30 employees and you're doing $6 million in sales and, you know, half those sales are gone, you're having to make tough decisions. And again, I think this goes a lot to the banks. I think they don't fully understand the the logic, or they understand it, but they're just not fully executing in the way they should. You know, this again, the and some of this falls on the Treasury in that they haven't been clear with the mission, right? The, the goals haven't been clearly stated, so banks are taking upon themselves to make their own, to put together their own decision-making process, and that's slowing things down. Um, I think you really, 
they, they need to get to the point when we get to this next tranche of funding first and dealing with questions second. This is a bigger picture. This is how do we keep the economy running at some level. We've already lost so much that, you know, we're at the point now where if things start continue to cascade down, then we start looking at really bad news. Right. And so this is the point right now where banks and Treasury have to get their act together. And the Treasury has to say to banks, loan money first, ask questions later, deal with fraud later. Because if we don't keep people in those jobs and more, more companies lay people off because they just don't see a light at the end of the tunnel, they don't have a comfort on when people are coming back. That, this, is when, this is that inflection point. It's right now, as we're speaking, that we are at an inflection point where money has to get into the system so small and medium and even large companies retain their employees. And that is the goal. If that doesn't happen, the, the, you know what hits the fan even worse than it already has. And I don't think banks fully understand that yet. I don't think the Treasury has fully conveyed that. And that has to change right now. Hey, Mark, I, I understand why, why banks may be a little hesitant on this front. On the one hand, you have them kind of, kind of trying to go through and make so many loans. Correct me if I'm wrong, I, I thought the banks kept at least a portion of this, 5% or something of all the loans they're making. We're not asking them to just be conduits. We are asking them to do this sort of quick credit counsel that the government can't exactly. do because it doesn't know these so people, crazy, it doesn't Becky. have them. So. But that's what I mean. I mean, they, I, for the banks, I get why they're a little hesitant to just throw money out willy-nilly. They're, they're on the line for this. They are being asked to be risk adjusters and no, risk not really, managers not really. I mean, on this been, process. What, no, that's what we'll they, disagree. They are. If, 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 if we were just giving out money, we'd be doing the same thing that the IRS is doing with individuals and just sending the checks out. No, why do you have to this, go through the banks? You go through see, the banks because you want them to be a risk assessor. Well, but again, this is the, then, then we made a mistake by going through the banks, and we should have just done overdraft protection that was guaranteed by the Fed. Because, and that's exactly what I proposed early on, but that's neither here nor there. Or there. Right now, we have to look at the bigger picture. What is the cost of lack of risk adjustment in, take, in doing these loans to small and medium-sized business, particularly when the maximum loan is $10 million, particularly when you, you have to use it to retain employees or it doesn't turn into a grant? So those are the two things that you could evaluate after the fact, Right. How much was, what percentage was it, 25% on non-payroll? But the U.S. government isn't necessarily, I mean, the government's not necessarily running the risk on all of that. I think the banks have something on the line, too, which is why they... But the feds have said, we'll absolve you of the risk effectively. You know, this is the first time but in the history of banking. as you mentioned, Treasury hasn't clarified all the rules. No, okay, well, that, that's, and that's what I refer to with affiliates and other issues. But look, the goal here... What is the goal? Why is this program even in place? Why is it called the Paycheck Protection Program? Right, Because we want to keep people in their jobs. We want to have the least amount of turnover in, 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 job, in job losses we possibly can. And in that particular time, in these particular circumstances, we have to deal with the, what banks traditionally do in, ter- in terms of credit and risk assessment and put that last. And that's one of the reasons they put limits. I mean, look, it's $350 billion, but it's $10 million for any one company, right, or any one location, the way they defined it, right? You can't have more than 25% in non-payroll expenses. And so the maximum losses that you can have for any one event, those are still going to go to the Treasury. No one, anything that I've read, and I've read all the Treasury rules that they put out, there's nothing from the Treasury that says, if you don't, if you don't assess this credit correctly, we're not going to reimburse you for that money. 
the only the only rules in apply Mark. to whether or not the companies that receive the money have to pay it back or not. Hey, hey Mark, I, I just while we have you here, sure, you're in all the Shark Tank sure. stuff. You got more stuff around with with all your businesses, and and that's what we're talking about. I know, but can I just just talk about basketball just sure. just for a second because I'm trying to see how this actually works. And one of the lighter moments in one of Andrew Cuomo's press conferences, I don't know if you saw it, but he was talking about people, you know, on the playgrounds playing basketball, that, that if, you're, if you have six-foot distances, you suck as a basketball player. <laughs> I, that's how I play defense. I'm like, I'm like six feet. You cannot play basketball no, without play being very close. No, so how do you – do you test everyone that's playing, and then do you – Sell one sixth of the tickets in the in the uh, in the arenas. How how and when does that ever get back to the way it was? Well, a couple different questions there. One, you know, we can quarantine a larger group of people, but again, I'm just speculating. You know, the science will tell us what to do. That all this comes down to getting back any level of normalcy. Normalcy comes down to when do we have some types of therapies? When do we have some types of vaccines? When the scientists tell us that those are in place, then we can start to move forward. And over time, people start to feel more and more comfortable once they see that others are not getting sicker. And we'll just have to respond to the same science as everybody else. I mean, what we'll do, how, how we'll do what we do is to be determined, Joe. I, I mean, I can't wait to get back out there. But until then, we'll have to play horse instead of five on five, I guess. But, you know, horse, I, right, I don't know right, when or horse, where. Right. Right, I, I saw the horse game. That's a good idea, by the way. Until <laughs> you see my horse game, me against you. Do what they, do you think? Do, yeah, can but you do, shoot? They ever? Do, uh, you know, I've been, I've been. I can't. I mean, I, I'm terrible, but I'm getting a little bit better. I, I finally can make free throws. Maybe, maybe four or five out of ten. But it's, <laughs> I'm not good. No. I'm, I'm, well, Joe, you got time. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears. Subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. 